Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast. This week, the pangs of the dying embers of passion in wildlife and the passionate dying members of gangs in widows. I'm Jake Cunningham, your host for today. And with me, we have two brand new voices to the podcast. You'll know her words for sight and sound in the skinny. It's Kelly Weston. Hello. And we're also joined by the cinema editor for Culture Whisper, Ella Kemp. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Good. Yeah, I mean, it's a big week. Uh, We normally only allocate time for one film of the week, but it's one of those special weeks where we couldn't pick and we've got to do two. Uh, So we're going to smash our way through both Wildlife and Widows, as well as talking to Wildlife's director, the wonderful Paul Dano, who sat down with not yourself, Kelly, but regular (laughs) Kelly, Kelly Powell, um, who we are sending our well wishes to, who twisted out her back last night. But Wildlife, it first premiered, well, a long, long time ago in the world of cinema. Ella, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this film before we hear from its director, Paul Dano. I would love to. So Wildlife is the directorial debut for actor Paul Dano. It's um, adapted from the novel of the same name by Richard Ford. And Paul Dano adapted this. He first wrote a draft of the script himself and then he um, showed it to his partner, uh, Zoe Kazan, actor and screenwriter as well. And she rewrote the draft herself and they passed it back and forth and they now share screenwriting credits. So it's a labour of love between the pair of them. So the film premiered at Sundance, then it went on to feature in the first feature strand at Cannes, then Toronto Film Festival, New York Film Festival, London Film Festival, and it's finally out in cinemas this week and I am so glad. (laughs) Yeah, it's done a pretty tremendous gap year, just a lot of (laughs) travelling there. And yeah, I don't know really much about this. I have to say I haven't seen it yet, so I'm really looking forward to catching up on it and I know you two do like the film. Ella, it was your review for Sight and Sound that I remember first uh, emailing you about and saying, do you want to come and talk about this when it comes out? Mm -hmm. Because that was a particularly fantastic review. But let's hear from the director, Paul Dano. It's very lovely to meet you. Yeah. Welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Yeah. And congratulations on your film. I thought it was such a uh, a moving, intimate uh, portrayal of family life and a family in crisis. Um, So really congratulations. Thank you. You co-wrote this this film with your uh, writing partner and real life partner uh, Zoe Kazan. I wanted to know how the f- how the story came to you guys and what your writing process was like as as writing partners. Yeah, so I read this book called Wildlife by Richard Ford, um, 
the first sentence and paragraph remains one of my favorites ever. Uh, so I was sort of in on the book immediately, just as a reader, I mean. And Do you remember what it was? Sure, what yeah. Was it? Well, I, I, the first sentence, I won't go the whole okay. first paragraph, but it's uh, in the fall of 1960, when I was 16 and my father was for a time not working, my mother met a man named Warren Miller and fell in love with him. Wow. Okay. It like grabs you instantly. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, yes. So I was just, uh, and even 20, 20 something pages in, I was having a very big experience reading the book. Um, it really reminded me of myself, my parents, my grandparents. Um, uh, thematically, just sort of the American dream. And then the sort of backdrop of the sort of um, the home being the world on this against this landscape which mm -hmm. feels like you know so huge and the edge of the world and the sort of fires on the horizon and so i just kind of fell in love um yeah. and gave it to zoe to read and said what do you think could it be a movie and we talked about it and i read it and read it and thought about it and sort of when i not everything in the book might work for a film so when i thought of what the ending of the film might be and the final image that's kind of when I felt really like, oh, I think I think I can do this. So I wrote a first draft. Mm -hmm. I gave it to Zoe. She tore it apart. And we fought. Yeah. And then she said, why don't you let me do a pass? I okay. see what you're trying to do. Okay. And I said, great. Okay. And then we started a sort of long process of just trading it back and forth. Um, we'd talk for a few hours and then one of us would take it mm. and we'd option it ourselves. So it was it was on our time, meaning, you know, we weren't mm. on a deadline. We also weren't paying our rent writing it. We were writing it for for fun or, mm. you know, or for, you know, for, uh, for us. Um, yeah, personal and, project, yeah. And acting, you know, is so one of us might go away and one of us might work on the script mm. and once it was really ready, uh, then we went, then we went and tried to make it. So how long did it take you in total to get like the finished script that you were happy with? A few years oh, for yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah, but again with time on our side, yeah. meaning not always working on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. There's a great thing in Stephen King's book on writing where he says you after you write your first draft, put it in a sealed envelope for six to eight weeks mm. and don't look at it. Yeah. You know, and we sort of had that built in. Okay. To the process because we might disappear for a while and yeah. you, you, you know go work mm. on something and then mm -hmm. you come back to it and your eyes are refreshed mm. and you go oh okay yeah and it just kind of m matures over time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so you touched on the American dream, and this film for me had so much to do with identity, uh, identity crises, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, e each of them going through their own kind of identity crisis as individuals and as a family unit. I mean, the setting happens at a time where the, na you know, America itself was going through sort of a, an identity reconstruction after the war. So what was it about these themes, you know, the breakdown of that family unit and these people in crisis? that drew you as a new directorial voice to the story in contemporary times? I think that was a very good analysis. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. For me, I think the first entry point is actually just the personal connection. And for me, I found that, like, the mystery of who our parents are mm. kind of haunting or intoxicating or something, mm. you, you know? And so why family... And, and, and also... I think something he did very well was how family is one of the greatest loves of our life. And almost because of that, it's also sometimes like some of our greatest pain. Yeah. We certainly interrogated why 1960 and there's something archetypal mm. about it. 
the time period, this post-war America, this idea that life is supposed to be good and you're now promised a good, mm-hmm. safe life and and um, that the American dream promises you this sort of thing on the horizon and life's always better. And then one day you sort of go, but my life's right here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Jerry, um, the, 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 the father, mm-hmm. I think a uh, good-looking guy, mm-hmm. right? Good with people. Mm-hmm athletic mm. i think he, at a young age you're promised like a great life and i think yeah. at a certain point he realized it's not what what he was talked up to be yeah yeah and, yeah and can't you know and he's been sort of able to displace it for years and say no 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 it'll get you know and mm. then one day it's and i think the parents do go through a crisis of identity is mm. exactly right i think it's mm. a coming of age film for a family yeah. not just the kid mm. um and the it's the film also relies heavily on the character of Joe, you know, witnessing this sort of unfolding, happening at a time where, you know, he's also coming of age, as you said, and forming his own ideas about his life and where he fits in with all of it. Um, So I wanted to ask you about the, the, you know, what were you looking for when you were casting Joe and how did you find Ed um, Oxenberg? Oxenbold, yeah. Oxenbold, yeah. Great. And I'm going to finish answering the question before because now I remember where you were going. Okay. which is that for me, family is also just timeless. Uh, and like, I really have always loved the idea that the more personal something is, the more universal it is. And I just think that that's also an avenue family. We all have one mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And um, looking at marriages breaking and how many you know of us mm-hmm. grow up with parents who are struggling in some capacity mm-hmm. and sort of what it feels like to realize your parents had a past life or, or, or that they struggle yeah. or that they mess up, you know, yeah. so that being sort of the Eden of childhood and it, and I know it's gradual probably, but I think it feels often like one day you wake up and suddenly mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh shit, wait, you know, what, mm-hmm. what happened or I didn't know that or, mm-hmm. um, and so I loved the time period also because of stepping into like, it helps me as an audience member, mm. I just think one step removed actually sometimes lets mm. you sort of see yourself. Yeah. Um, totally. And the aesthetic is obviously really, you know, s- yeah. special in yeah, that time. Totally. And then it, the film is even more modern than I think that I anticipated it slowly as we worked on it. Unfortunately, especially like the past few weeks, it feels like this Jeanette character mm. has come to life in a slightly new way, which yeah. is really interesting how that works yeah. in art and you know it's how funny, yeah. history repeats itself. And mm. it's felt so vital that 1960 be the place for her mm. struggle. But, mm. you know, it's sort of uh, mm-hmm. we're having a strange time in America exactly. right now. And, yeah. y- you know, anyway, so Ed, the kid, yeah. we very scary to make a film with a kid who's in almost every scene you know yeah. and and i don't think i totally realized that while writing it until we were going to cast it we had a great casting director in new york named laura rosenthal we saw a lot of kids ed was one of the last tapes we got got a tape from australia a kid named ed oxenbold which is a great name mm-hmm. and this is a very like american film so i just didn't like anticipate casting an australian kid with a great american accent yeah. you know but his was by far the best audition he was the really the only young actor we saw that could kind of fill in the space between the lines. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't just that he could say the lines well or something. Like he was really thinking. Yeah. Um, and you could see it. And the movie is reliant. Like this, that space is kind of where it lives, actually. Yeah, in the quiet spaces, yeah. Yeah, and mm. that's sort of where I think a lot of its truth and sort of... I've always liked the illusion of simplicity, so trying to just create nice compositions mm. and let the actors' inner life sort of be the movement. Mm-hmm. And 
it, we couldn't have made the film without Ed. So I feel really, really lucky that we found him. Yeah, he's really fantastic. Yeah. I wanted to ask what you saw the role of nature playing uh, in the film. Because for me, it was this ever-present sort of uncontrollable force that was always under the surface and at times it was like as if humanity and nature were at odds with each other jerry fighting the fire mm -hmm. um and the the role that nature plays in the film you're doing great this is good yeah Thanks. really um Thanks. it's lovely um so you, you've already reflected i think a, a little bit of it which which which, which was nicely said so being at odds is one thing, but I also feel like sometimes our emotional life is like that a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's bigger than us occasionally and it's sometimes out of our control. Yeah. So a period of crisis, I don't think these parents are, mm. they're exploding, you know, like they're mm. not totally in control of that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, they lose control. Mm -hmm. And I think for a kid seeing that, there's something of nature just in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that being on the edge of the world in this town in Montana, yeah. um, these fires sort of out there in the distance, uh, there's something, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like it's really like in the belly as well. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, because we are, like, we are animals. Yeah. Know? And there's we a helplessness, I yeah. think. There's a helplessness for these characters. Mm-hmm or they feel helpless maybe at least, you know. Okay, so <laughs> what was it like to be doing this as your first sort of directorial debut, um, having worked with such incredible directors? I mean, There Will Be Blood, I think, is one of the best films ever made. Um, and you must have learned something from Paul Thomas Anderson. And Was it always yeah. something you wanted to do, or is it something that sort of just progressed? For a long time, mm. for a long time, yeah. And mm. I think it's actually informed my acting quite a bit, uh -huh. just meaning I don't just care about the part, like mm. the film and the filmmaker really turn me on. Mm. And so sometimes I'm actually prone to take like a quote smaller part, mm. but in a film that feels like a film to me yeah. um so i've always sort of been you know a bit snobby that way <laughs> um so to speak uh yeah. because i love film so yes along the way i mean the, the the funny thing is when you're acting in something you're like a horse with blinders on and so it's you know i've always sort of gotten off on when i get like a, getting to work with roger deakins or oh, whoever you mm -hmm. know it's like really exciting and there's some information by osmosis but usually then when i get there you know yeah. so but for sure somebody like paul thomas anderson uh, a lot of filmmakers just seeing the sort of temperature on their set seeing how the crew is sort of enmeshed in it and mm -hmm. that they want to be there mm -hmm. the spirit of it um the attention to detail mm -hmm. the focus the sort of tenacity and yeah and the love you know and the care mm -hmm. um that sort of everything matters you know and, and making mm -hmm. a film is kind of a constant fight you know you're pushing a rock up a hill mm -hmm. takes an incredible amount of will mm. thank you so much right, uh, for yeah. chatting yeah Great. i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Kelly, this is a a first film from an actor turned director. Whenever someone announces that they're going to do that, there's (laughs) an intrepidation, but anticipation. You're always interested. Yeah, and I I really love Paul Dano as an actor. Um, It's unfortunate that he has not had the career that I wished for him. (laughs) But he's always great whenever he turns up um, in films. Uh, So just a really great character actor. And apparently now a really great um, director and screenwriter. (laughs) Um, It's a really, really assured, um, really meticulous debut. I think... A lot of first-time actors have a tendency to be quite indulgent with their work, and this is a really, like, uh, tight, clean, just very focused film. And he managed to get some really, really good performances out of his actors. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal and Carey Mulligan, we know, are, like, incredible. But the actor who plays their son, whom uh, I cannot is remember that his Ed name. Oxenbold? It is yeah. Yes, he's incredible. I think he he gives a, a, a really wonderful um, performance in this. So, Caduce to, to Paul Dano and to, to Zoe Kazan is also a favorite of mine. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned there about uh, actors maybe being a bit indulgent with their films. Maybe some might get lost down a river. Who's to say uh, when they do a directorial debut? But uh, I'm curious about when actors or maybe even screenwriters, I was thinking in the case of Aaron Sorkin with Molly's Game, who feel like they're magpieing from their directors. So Aaron Sorkin like lifting from a bit of Fincher, picking from directors. I'm wondering whether there's any of Dano's director's works that you might see in this? Or does it very much feel like his own film? I think it really feels like a labour of love and you can tell that it's so careful about the way the characters are crafted and their stories just feel so specific. I think because it's a suburban family, it is very small and it's not really trying to be more epic than it is, but because it's all just done in such a delicate way, it feels like it matters enough to not have to draw comparisons to, you know, wider stylistic tropes or anything like that. It's the the Brinsons, the family in this film, feel like a family that you've seen in other films, but then also I found watching it, it feels like my family or or someone else. The BBC sitcom. Yes, Mm -hmm. that exact one. No (laughs) relation to my personal life or feelings in the slightest. Um, But yeah, but it's really wonderful. And I have fond memories of watching it as much as really painful ones and sad ones, just thinking about the very quiet moments where nothing tragic really happens, but you can still feel that everyone has still kind of fallen apart a little bit. Okay, and it manages to tread that line between kind of being reflective and meditative and not stilted. Well, I think it could have very easily become a hammy sitcom, but I don't think it did at all. I think there's there's a lot of power and fire in the way that these characters are unhappy with their lives, but I don't think it ever sways too far into melodrama or something that you can tell is, ah, this is a good trope for drama, for something that's really going to, you know get you crying. Okay. Um, So let's uh, look into those key performances. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, he's playing a golf pro who 
gets fired uh, and then gets enlisted as a firefighter. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So he decides to, he's the one who, he doesn't get enlisted. So a lot of people in, in the town are enlisted because there are wildfires menacing the city. It's set in Montana. So Jerry Brinson, he gets fired because he's too friendly with the golfers. And so that really hits him hard because, you know, he, he's the man of the family and he's got this stress that he can't provide for his family anymore. But then when he's asked back, that's almost an insult to his identity and how good he is. So he decides himself to go and fight these fires, not because it pays well or because it's a particularly big thing to do, but it's a thing that he can do. Yeah, he's this really conflicted man who has to show that he can do things and that he's strong, but doesn't really know how to show that to his wife and to his son. And what about Kerry Mulligan? What's what's her role in, in this one? Kerry Mulligan has a, a really fascinating role. Um, I don't think I've ever really seen a character like this before mm. because at the same time that you're watching Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who's, um, this is a, a really uh, well-performed, but I still think quite traditional sort of unraveling of masculinity and, um, you know, men of that era being far too prideful in a way <laughs> that can uh, really destroy the family just because of how, um, you know, the conventional family structure was set up back then. But Carrie Mulligan uh, is somebody who, you know, we don't realize it at first when we're watching her, but is somebody who's really quite repressed, which is also quite indicative of the era. And she sort of slowly, uh, you you watch her essentially reverse in maturity um, while she has to raise her son. So you would think um, in this setup, she would become so much more uh, resourceful and independent now that she's uh, the single mother of a 14-year-old, but actually she becomes like increasingly more dependent. She very much clings to her son, but also doesn't really treat him like a child. So she forces him to, to grow up in a lot of ways that are, are really unfair, really. You don't blame her. I mean, she makes a, a, a lot of choices in the film that definitely make you, as a, as a viewer watching her, really frustrated. But um, the entire time, I felt a lot of sympathy for her, for somebody who um, we learn, you know, later she and Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, as, you know, Stander got married really early uh, and had their son, and she really didn't have a, a, a chance at a full youth, and so she's sort of reliving that once Jake Gyllenhaal's character leaves. Mm. And uh, does does it give you a feeling that Dana might be able to kind of spread his wings and direct a, a variety of things, or does it feel like maybe this this might be a, a voice that he would be settling with? I think... I think... I'm hopeful for whatever he would do next because I think the strength that he really has here is how well he takes care of his actors and his characters. You can tell that he's put so much detail into the direction and has really let these characters come to life by having such patience with his actors. And I think, I hope that could be applicable to such a well, variety that's, of stories. That, that's so true. Like If you can just get the characters right, then you can mm. pretty much plonk them into yeah, yeah, yeah. any genre you like. Uh, and perhaps time to move genre. Let's uh, definitely take, take a hard right handbrake turn into the heist of Widows. So Steve McQueen, one of the most interesting voices in contemporary British cinema, directs a vital reimagining of the 80s TV drama Widows, based on the novel by Linda LaPlante. In his first foray into genre filmmaking, McQueen's crime thriller transplants the story to modern-day Chicago and ups the ante with Viola Davis shining through in an ensemble cast of Widows who follow their husband's footsteps into crime after a botched job. And there's someone in the room who may have already seen this three times, despite the fact it only came out yesterday. (laughs) 
Uh, Kelly, I'm going to have to well. interrogate you here. <laughs> Is Widows a good film? It's an excellent film. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to clarify, I didn't see it three times yesterday. <laughs> I saw it uh, at a screening and then I saw it at LFF and then I went with a friend the other day because I was like, this is an important film to see. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I really, really loved it. Um, I love Steve McQueen. I can't say, like, you know, I've, I've been, you know, in, in quotes, following his career, but I have been uh, a huge, huge fan of his since I watched Hunger uh, ages ago. So uh, this film feels like a real, I think, at the outset, departure for him. It is certainly more mainstream than his previous films, like Shame and, uh, again, Hunger, but I do think it, it still grapples with a lot of those themes that he's become known for. So um, intimacy, he's thinking about grief. Uh, the film is... Really fascinating and really quite um, subtle exploration at the same time as being a really high powered heist movie and political thriller. It's a really subtle exploration of grief and, and the things that these women do to sort of fill up that space that their husbands, who were not perfect men, uh, who were in many ways deeply, deeply bad and problematic <laughs> and abusive men, uh, but you know, they, they love them. Um, and I really appreciate how emotionally driven uh, this film is at the same time as being really just, you know, full of action and also having a lot to say about the era that we're living in currently, mm. politically. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned about following McQueen, but not really. As soon as you mentioned that, I suddenly realised that, oh yeah, I can actually remember where I was every time that I watched one of his films exactly. for the first time. Yeah. I never really thought mm. of him as being a director that I follow like that mm. um, but clearly each one made an impact and I love a heist yeah. I feel like oh, I'm so, I was so excited to hear about this I can't resist them it's been a phenomenal year for heists um, yes. but this this is really at the top end I loved it and what was brought in from from those films that you can see here what's classic McQueen and what's new McQueen what is the most exciting fresh stuff that we're seeing here in Widows for the first time well, I think that, first of all, it's the first of his film to focus on women because his other films, um, he does have interesting female characters, but they're not the main focus of it. Um, whereas here, obviously, you have Viola Davis leaving, leading sorry, this incredible cast of, you know, of mostly women. You've got Elizabeth Debicki, um, Cynthia Erivo and Michelle Rodriguez, who are all fantastic. That is a clear departure from his previous films, but you've still got that same kind of human focus and which really grapples with, as you said, Kelly, these mm. women's emotion and their pain and the way that they are kind of damaged and conflicted as well as being, of course, strong and empowering and everything else that they are. And then he takes with him, you know, again, his cinematographer, Sean Bobbitt. Uh, there are a lot of moments in this film that really feel... Um, uh, a sort of evocative of shame mm -hmm. um, and in a couple of moments even like 12 years of shame but I think that's just sort of like you know the stylized you know aesthetic of a really close up shots of, of you know profiles and um, hands uh, it's it's just like it's it's stunning to behold and I also think it's important to say that Viola Davis looks amazing in this mm. film and she wears incredible clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I say that in jest, but also it is a film that is very much about the intersection of class and race. And he does this so much better than really a lot of, of American directors have been able to do it to, you know, sort of draw the lines between 
all of these people who live in this city and who are, you know, very diverse, but it doesn't feel as if he's just sort of like plopped them in and not thought about their backgrounds at all. Um, it's it's really, really skillfully done, I think. Yeah, I think um, talking of skillful moments, there's one particular one that I think has appeared in every review, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, <laughs> um, which is the car bonnet shot. Uh, and this follows Jack Mulligan, which is Colin Farrell's character, who's kind of on his first rung of the political ladder eventually dreams of being the mayor and he does a rally in the kind of project area of the city he's going for a rally for this dodgy scheme called the uh, minority women of work scheme which he yeah. set up uh, which is borderline alan partridge it's so cringy um, and then the camera is just sat on his car bonnet as he moves from sticks stuck up somewhere politician mode trying to sound impressive to mm-hmm. all of these people that he's really exploiting and getting in the car and the camera just stays on the car as it drives through the streets and within a matter of minutes we go from quite a dilapidated area to the tall iron fenced homes of the people that he's really supporting and the Mm. people that he's really helping it's not subtle but I think it's really impressive uh, and it's really elegantly done and in Sight and Sound Steve McQueen uh, spoke about this moment and what I loved about it is that he said also being British we can stretch a pound we have to (laughs) Uh, such limitations give you a certain kind of freedom and that's exactly it like in this moment they've covered what could be a montage of travel and the conversation inside the car of a Mm -hmm. shot reverse and all of this and instead, in one single move and saving a lot of everyone's time and money, <laughs> you've actually made something more impressive. And I mm. think I love the way that he's thinking about being a filmmaker, not just how can I make an impact, but how can I do this on the resources that I've got to make the maximum impact. Well, he also has that in, um, as you were saying, Kelly, the costumes that the, some of the things that Viola Davis wears are so stunning. Yeah. And it's another thing of him not necessarily needing to be subtle, but just being making very simple but bold choices. The black and white in this film, all of the colours just pop so much and look incredible. And it means that when you do have the odd flash of colour... Like there's one tiny moment in particular, I I think it's in the trailer, when you see Daniel Kaluuya just looking on, he is waving at everyone with these haunting eyes and you just see a flash of bright pink bubble gum Mm. and it's just just a tiny detail. But because Steve McQueen has set up the way he uses colours this way, when you have that little pop of this alien flash of colour, God, it's amazing. We also have to just talk briefly uh, about how scary Daniel Kaluuya oh, is. Oh in my the show. god! Like, stop. <laughs> He's incredible. I also want to say Brian Tyree Henry has given, um, he gives two incredible understated uh, performances in both If Beale Street Could Talk uh, and this film. Mm-hmm. Like he's Absolutely. also very menacing in this film. He does a very bad thing with the dog. So yeah. warning dog lovers out there. But Daniel Kaluuya is is phenomenal. And has really God. like proven himself to be a really incredible actor. He's doing an entirely different American accent than he was doing in Get Out. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he is like essentially the muscle for his his brother, who's played by Brian Tyree Henry's called Jamal. They don't want to go, you know, straight, <laughs> but they do want to have, I guess, more legitimate businesses as to like, you know, essentially increase their income. But yeah, I think Dan Kaluuya does a great job with this role. Yeah. It's very easy to like, you know, go over the top with this and he gets it just right. It's yeah. He, he's not like a henchman for a Bond film. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah. He is so scary in this. Like, I was checking over my notes before we came in the room <laughs> on my phone um, and I realised I had just written Bowling Alley 
twice. <laughs> I mean, I think it's saying something that everyone I've spoken to who's seen this film, we all relay different moments when in the screening we were in, there was audible gasps, yeah. clapping, yeah. whooping, all for similar reasons, that, but just in completely different circumstances with, the, with audiences and it just shows how much his performance just hits you in the face yeah just oh. yeah um and talking of gaspable moments uh i love viola davis completely overpowering a scene and controlling everyone yeah. while still holding a tiny little dog yeah. oh my god <laughs> there is a scene in which viola davis literally they're talking about her behind her back and she literally appears holding a like pure white dog it's like you know he is like Unbelievable. it would be like a villain moment <laughs> but she's great and yeah. i have to say she does not get the the respect that she deserves yeah. in this yeah. film and that is what i will say about that <laughs> brilliant so that that is widows uh, which it sounds like in this room we like a lot <laughs> and ella there's going to be a little bit more hashtag content available from yourself oh there uh, is <laughs> uh, and because we've got a piece coming up on the blog uh, very soon uh, linking these two together mm-hmm. as well and looking at those female characters in them is that right absolutely yes yeah. so it's going to be focusing on characters that we mentioned today so on viola davis in widows and Kerry mulligan in wildlife and just how much I love these performances and kind of reckoning with the idea that these women are unlikable, as described by audiences who have seen the film. I don't know if I would agree. I'm going to draw the line between what is a strong character, what is a likable character, who are these women and why should we watch them? Excellent. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, if you, for some reason, don't fancy going to the cinema this weekend, you can stay in and you can watch something on Curzon Home Cinema if you like. We've recently uh, got uh, Custody on there, which is the film that we spoke to Denis Minachet of that opening scene from Inglorious Bastards all about. Um, and there's also a new Best of Mike Lee collection to coincide with the release of Peterloo. Uh, so on there you've got Vera Drake, Life is Sweet uh, and Mr. Turner. And if you're interested in Peterloo, you can go back to our episode last week where we spoke to Mike all about that film. And if you've got any thoughts on Widows or Wildlife uh, or any of the other recent releases that we've spoken about, then do email us at podcast at curzon.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on these films. Next week, the witching hour is upon us as we try and unravel the rhythms of Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. And uh, that's really about it we must say bye for this week it's been so nice to have you both here uh, thank you Kelly for joining us uh, if people want to catch up with you and find your writing can they do that anywhere uh, you can find my writing on the skinny and uh, for a sight and sound of course great and Ella follow you on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter I'm at EFE Kemp or you can read me on Culture Whisper or sight and sound sometimes brilliant and if it's your first time listening to the show then please do subscribe give us a review or a comment wherever you get your pods that might be itunes acast wherever we don't discriminate thanks so much for joining us bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.